0: Let's turn on our Bibles this morning to Psalm 1 this morning. Psalm 1. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And you just wave to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one home and a gift from the Lord. Book of Psalms, if the concordance in your Bible isn't so big, the old way of doing things before study Bibles is just open your Bible up right in the middle and you'll typically hit the Psalms and then just keep going left until you hit Psalm 1. Famous Psalm. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away, Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's pray together now. Thank you, Lord, for your presence in this room right now. Thank you for your heart toward us. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your grace and for your love. Thank you for the plans that you have for our lives this morning through Psalm 1. And we pray, Lord, that your voice would be behind my human voice here today to speak into each one of our hearts what it is that we need to hear from you as we begin this new year. We've come for a work of your Holy Spirit. That's what you want us to have And so we look forward to receiving it from you now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Personally, I like New Year's Day. I always have, ever since I was a kid. Something about the day that I like. And in those days, all of the major bowl games were on New Year's Day. Today, the bowl games begin somewhere in September, and they finish somewhere in October. I mean, you know how good the bowl game is for how far close it is to New Year's Day, and now it's scattered all over the map. But the Orange Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, uh, the Rose Bowl, all these bowls, the major bowls were all on the same day, and you could watch football from the moment that you woke up all the way to the time that you would go to bed. But I don't like New Year's Day just because of the football. As fond as that is is a memory uh, for me. I, I like the day because it provides people in our culture with a needed reference point. A time where people can stop and give some consideration to the year that has just gone by, and then to give consideration to the year that's immediately in front of us. And so that one day is kind of a pivot point where people in this culture are giving thought in both directions. And to me, anything that encourages that in a person's life has the potential to be a good thing. Because our culture is a a very efficient culture it is a very, very fast paced society and culture that we live in. And so anything that makes us pull back for a moment and reassess where we've been and then to ask ourselves, do we want to continue on that path or what changes do I want to make in the future so that the coming year is different in constructive ways? than the year that we just left and I think that's a good thing always a good thing uh, for for people to do and of course this is where New Year's resolutions come uh, into play where there is that recognition that this is what the former year was this is the kind of person that I was in that former year and now here is this This day that is associated in our culture with a fresh start. And sometimes we need to know there's that kind of a day in the calendar where we can look and say, all right, pretty tough to think about a fresh start, October 17th or May 23rd. But here on New Year's Day, sometimes we'll take that time to stop and say, okay, this is a day that everybody recognizes. We kind of get a fresh start to make changes that we want to make in our lives. And so the New Year's resolutions come out, most typically having to do with our appearance or some kind of a health thing or, or some changes in our schedule, something like that, that we decide now we want to make, uh, make those particular Uh, changes and to make resolutions that we think will make the new year uh, at least a little bit better and maybe considerably better than than the last year. Now, of course, it's a time where we hear everyone greeting one another with the phrase Happy New Year. And there certainly isn't anything wrong with that. It's a happy new year, a blessed new year. I always think to myself, why not? (laughs) Sure. Uh, um, Given the other option, but uh, but there isn't anything wrong with that. And I actually uh, kind of like it. And and I kind of like the fact that people say it, whether they know the Lord or whether they don't know the Lord. And because I love people in general and and when people say, you know, happy new year or blessed new year, whatever it might be, we realize everybody wants to believe that the coming year is going to be better than the previous year. We want to believe that life is going to get better and better and better for us. And life is hard in this world. I don't want to. Those of you who are younger, uh, ignorance is bliss. God bless you. Enjoy your youth and your young adulthood. But. Uh, Life is hard here it's a fallen world and it's hard all over the world there's blessings it's ice cream and whatever you want to fill the blank in with there's a lot of blessings here but it's a hard place and and for most of the world and ourselves in a greater measure than we've ever known it um, in recent years tough to uh, work out a living and lots of different things lots of challenges that we that we face and and so. Because life is hard in this world, when people are saying, you know, Happy New Year, it it simply means, as I listen to them, I think to myself, well, they haven't given up hope. And that blesses my heart. Because there's still that hope in the heart of a person that would say that, that there's hope for a coming year. There's hope for a fresh start and for something to be different about this coming year. The fact of the matter is, is for us as Christians, is that at this time of the year, and really any time of the year, we should be the most boldly optimistic and most boldly confident people concerning the future, whether it's about tomorrow or whether it's the coming year of any people in the entire world. We should be absolutely confident concerning our future, no matter how far out we're looking into our future. And the reason that we should be the most confident people in the world related to the coming year or the rest of our lives is simply because of the greatness of our God and the greatness of his promises that he has Given to us promises that he has always been faithful to keep and what he has always been. He will always be the coming year as well. I give you one example of the kind of promises in his word that are intended to give us great confidence concerning the future. And this is one of my favorites. Romans chapter eight, verse 32, and it declares he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now that's an amazing statement by the Holy Spirit to us. That's just the whole Bible. The, whole Bible, the Bible is full of wow verses. That is a wow wow verse there. In other words, if God has already given us his best in giving us his son as for our salvation and and in doing so, he has revealed himself to be a blessing God and a God who desires to bless us as his people, then is there any lesser gift that he won't also give? And every other gift is a lesser gift. And the answer to that question is no. And so we should be confident, every single one of us as Christians, that this coming year is going to be a great year of drawing closer to the Lord. Of coming to know God in a way that we have not yet known Him as we grow in our relationship with him, There are going to be things that He says to us, things that He does in our lives, things that He shows us, things that He works related to His lives, reveals of Himself in our lives, things that we could never dream about Him. And it's all going to happen in the coming year. As he does it in our lives, we're going to come to know him in a way that we never have known him before. And he's going to do that in our lives. We're going to experience his strength and his power in the coming year. We're going to experience the leading of the Holy Spirit, which is one of the greatest experiences a Christian can ever have. Where here we are, God prompts our hearts by his Holy Spirit to do something, to move in a particular direction. And we realize from our experience with God that this is how He leads us. And then as He leads us into this place, we discover this wonderful world that is found in this new place in His will. All that's going to happen in the coming year. He's going to speak to us. He's going to lead us in His will. And he's going to bless us. He's going to supply every single need in our lives that we have spiritually, that we have emotionally, that we have mentally, intellectually, that we have uh, physically. And he's going to use us. And the Lord has a fabulous year planned for each of us. And if you don't believe that, I rebuke you. I don't know what God you're serving, but you're living way below the God that loves you and saved you. God's got a great year planned for us. The Bible says underneath of the everlasting arms, He's going to take good care of us. But He's got a lot more than us just surviving 2012 in mind. He's got great things planned for each of our lives. He describes His will, again in a famous verse in the Scriptures, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he describes his will, what he's got in mind for you in this coming year, his will as good and acceptable and perfect. Doesn't get better than that. You can't find three words to describe anything that is superior to those three words. That's what God has planned for our lives. That's what is going to unfold in our lives and what we're going to experience in this coming year. As we look at this Psalm 1 this morning, I I don't want it to be a pure study of the psalm, though I can hardly help myself. Uh, But I want it to be a little bit more just looking at it as kind of a checklist where we can look as the psalmist lays out this blessed life that is described here. And we can go through his checklist as it relates to our own lives so that we can head into the year 2012 being confident that our lives are in a place that will allow God to bless us as fully as he desires to bless our lives. And he really desires to bless our lives in the book of Jude. It's just a single chapter. Jude, verse 21. It speaks about. Uh, It declares, keep yourself in the love of God. And the idea is for us as a child of God is to keep ourselves in that place where God is able to pour out the richness of his blessings that he wants to pour out upon our lives. And so the psalmist lays out what. Direction so that we can find ourselves in that place. There's an old hymn that talks about uh, standing under the spout where the blessings come out. You can just picture this big um, uh, bathtub faucet up there. You're in miniature in the bathtub. You turn the thing on and there's water just comes rushing down that faucet. And basically what Psalm 1 does, and there are other passages like it, it basically tells us how to plant ourselves under the fount of God's blessings so that He can pour them out as fully as He desires to upon our lives. The God that we serve is a blessing God. He is a blessing God. He loves to bless His people. And He will bless us to the degree and to the level that as fully as he possibly can, that will not be harmful to us. He will bless us to the degree that we have the spiritual character and maturity to be able to handle those blessings, and they won't spoil us. One of the things about a dad, and God is spoken of in the Bible as Abba Father, he is our daddy, he is our spiritual father, our spiritual dad. If daddy is too intimate for you. So he's our dad. He's a father to us. And that's the name he takes to himself. We're not presuming anything by calling him that. That's how, that's the relationship he wants with us. And one of the things about a father is a father loves to bless his children. More, we love to be blessed. Uh, By our fathers and we love to be blessed by God, but sometimes we forget it's a blessing to him to bless us. The worst thing a child can do to an earthly father is to live a life uh, that is sinful or disrespectful or whatever it might be that robs the father of being able to bless that child in the way that a father wants to bless that child. That's a terrible thing to do to an earthly father because earthly fathers, the best of them, most of them, have a desire to bless their children. But the same thing is true of our heavenly father. He desires to bless us, not just for our good, but because it Pleases his father's heart to do that. And Psalm 1 speaks to us about how to put ourselves consistently in that place, that we are able to fully receive his blessings, and he is able to fully bestow those blessings upon us. We notice in verse 1 that the psalmist was confident, as I've been speaking about, in. God's desire to bless His people. The first word of the psalm is "blessed," and that mean that word means "Oh, how happy!" So when it says "blessed is the man," he says, "Oh, how happy is the man!" And then he describes now the characteristics of the life that leads to a happier, blessed life with God. When I say "Happy New Year" to someone, uh, it's basically kind of a prayer that as Christians we would say over someone, you know, Happy New Year, have a blessed New Year. But when we say typically one person says to another in the culture, or, uh, you know, Happy New Year, it's basically a wish for a, a Happy New Year. If I say Happy New Year to you, I'm communicating a wish or a desire that you have a Happy New Year. I have no ability to produce that for you. I don't have the resources, I don't have the energy, I don't have the wisdom to provide you with a happy new year. So, at best, I am able to simply say that as a wish, but I have no ability to produce it for you. The interesting thing uh, here in Psalm 1, though, is that, God reveals the recipe for a happier, or a blessed life and he tells us where it is found and he does have the ability to produce that. In other words, a blessed new year isn't something that I merely wish for, but it's one that I can be actively involved in making happen related to my own life. And in verses 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit lists five characteristics of the blessed man or the blessed person. He talks about man throughout the psalm. Ladies, don't be offended by that. It's used in a generic sense of Adam is, you know, speaking about men and women, mankind. So it applies to all of us. And so the five characteristics of the blessed person or the blessed man first in verse 1. He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. So counsel is given for the purpose of influencing a person. Counsel is given for the purpose of fashioning a human life. And the psalmist says the blessed man is the man who does not allow the ungodly to fashion his life or to influence his life. He does not allow the ungodly to fashion his thinking or his morals or his definitions of right and wrong or his actions or his anything. He does not allow the world to become his counselor. He does not need the world's advice about anything on any level. And he does not allow the ungodly to to fashion one iota of his heart, his mind, his soul, or his strength. And when the psalmist writes concerning the ungodly, he's not just talking about the wicked or the openly wicked person. He is talking and referring to those, also to those who leave God out of their thinking and thus God out of their counsel. And we're going to see in just a moment that the child of God has far access to far better counsel than the counsel of the ungodly. So again, he doesn't come under the influence of the ungodly. And no matter who we are, I don't care what age we are, I don't care what our experiences in life are, no matter what, we are influenced by what is around us. We're influenced by the people that are around us. We're influenced by what we watch, what we allow to come into the eye gate. We are influenced by what we read, again, the eye gate, into the mind. We are affected by what we listen to, into the ear gate. We are affected by all of these things and more, and not just for bad, but also for good. And the Bible teaches that this fallen world, and it's a fallen, ungodly world, It is constantly working to fashion me and to fashion you, to mold us, to put us into its mold. And that's what it does. There's an agenda in the world to conform all of our thinking to the same, which is godless. All of our doing to the same, which is godless, man-centered. And so there is this conforming process that is going on all around us. And the man who is blessed is the man or the woman who resists that attempt by the world to fashion our thinking, our decision making, how we view life, our actions, and so forth. Now, in the old days, I'm talking about Psalm 1, we're talking about 3,000 years ago. So, in the old days, counsel, uh, influence, conforming, all of this took place, for the most part, one human being to another human being. took place face to face. Some of you may not believe it, but 3,000 years ago, they didn't have cell phones. There were no computers. There were no newspapers. There were no magazines. If you could find something in print, it was in print because scribes wrote it out by hand, which made it almost impossibly uh, expensive for anybody to own anything that was Written. So there's no computers. There's none of this kind of stuff. No televisions, no radios, no iPod. None of this. All influence happened face to face. But today, everything's changed to where now the average person that sits in a room like this or sits in a room anywhere in the United States of America, maybe in the whole wide world to varying degrees. Our greatest influence sometimes doesn't occur from other people that we see face to face. We are influenced by what it is that we have loaded into all of these electronic devices and that we are allowing to pour into our eyes and into our ears. So we have to and the point I'm making is we have to take the test and recognize How the conforming process is operating, that it is moved in large part from face to face, though that still exists, it has moved now into this other realm. And we need to put the other realm to just as strict a test as we would put to anybody who is standing right before our face and speaking to us and endeavoring to conform us uh, into ungodliness or into the, the fashion of this of this world. Now, this doesn't mean that I can't watch television or watch the evening news or I can't listen to the radio or even talk radio. I can't attend a public school because they don't, you know, openly point me to God. We would need to leave the whole wide world if that were the standard for everything. But all, in all of those things, I don't let them counsel me. I can sit in a classroom. I can be in a waiting room or in my own living room where they've got a TV going and TVs are everywhere. And here it is blaring out its thing or the radio can be on or somebody can be speaking over here in any environment. And I can politely listen, but in my heart I can say to myself, I will not let you counsel me. You will not fashion me. I'll be polite, I'll be kind, I'll be whatever in this environment. But in my heart of hearts, I am determined that you will not fashion my life by your ungodliness. I will be fashioned by the Holy Spirit and by God's word. And so I'm here, I'm in this place, but you are not my counselor and I will not let you fashion me. And if you find yourself in a place where you can't watch a television newscast or listen to the radio or, or, or talk radio or be in an academic environment without having it fashion you in an adverse or ungodly way, then you are not spiritually prepared for that environment. So you just turn it off or you excuse yourself and don't reintroduce yourself until you're spiritually able To navigate that environment that's what we all do all of the time related to our our lives uh, Christian lives and so experience the blessed experiencing the blessed life the life that God has planned for me will mean that I will not allow myself to be fashioned or to be influenced by the ungodly the ungodly have nothing to offer. The man or the woman who is seeking true happiness in life. They bring nothing to the table. And so why would we receive from them? And so speaking about influences in our lives. And so we check item number one. We ask ourselves as we head into this new year wanting to be fully confident of God's coming blessing in this year, and we allow him just to search our heart through his word about what we are allowing to influence us, who we are allowing to influence us. And are these instruments that are in our hands or in our homes, are they leading us to greater godliness and devotion to God, or are they pulling us away? The Bible says that if we want the blessed life, we will take and only expose ourselves and give a place of influence uh, in our lives to that which is influencing us toward godliness. The second thing that he lists here is that the blessed man will not stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't stand with them. He doesn't linger with them. He doesn't closely associate with the sinful man or with a sin uh, directed or a sin dominated man. And the reason that he doesn't stand with that kind of person is that once you stand with that kind of person, pretty soon uh, that lingering turns into standing and then pretty soon standing turns into joining them in their sinful ways or in their sinful uh, path. And we need to be discerning. The psalmist is telling us about who we make our counselors, who we make our advisors, but also who we make our friends and who we make our close associates in life. It's one of the most important decisions any human being will make. And it's not just kids. It's not just youth. say, "Oh, the peer pressure of youth. Yes, it's fierce. I wouldn't want to be in junior high again for all of the money in the world. But to think there is no peer pressure on adults, whatever our age is, is nonsense. That peer pressure goes on all the way through life. You think about how many men and women are in jail or in prison today. How many men and women are in rehab today? How many men and women... Are homeless today, walking the streets, their minds absolutely fried, gone, irreparably destroyed, apart from a miracle of God. How many men and women are trapped in gangs? How many men and women in the field of business have gone bankrupt? How many men and women have made terrible decisions? that are going to affect them for the rest of their lives because of failure in this very, very issue. They lingered with a sinful man or woman. They lingered with sinners. They became closely associated with sinners. And then began to take on the practices of those sinners. Sometimes you can go a little bit later in life. Say, I give my right arm to have never met that person. To have never given them one minute in my life, let alone five minutes or five days or five months or five years. God knows what He's talking about. It doesn't mean that we can't be friendly to those who are lost and don't know the Lord yet. Of course we can be and we should be. Jesus was that. But we are to influence them toward holiness, not be drawn into their sin. And if you're a Christian here this morning and you have a relationship like that in your life, where you are not spiritually influential in moving that person toward godliness and toward the Lord, but they are moving you toward sin, you've got to reassess that relationship. And the psalmist calls on you to separate from that relationship because if that's happening, that's a relationship. You do not have the spiritual and the moral character to have in your life right now. And they will pull you into destruction. They will destroy your life. And so we go through the checklist. I want this next year to be a great year. I want it to be a blessed year. Then it means we have to be selective about who we allow to be our friends and who we allow to be our close associates in life. The fact of the matter is, is that you could take any teenager kid, and this has been spoken of, but it's very, very true. You can take any youth and go up to them and say, listen, I don't need to know anything about you. I don't need to know what you think. I don't need to know your SAT scores. I don't need to know your IQ. I don't need to know your athletic ability. I don't need to know your interests. I don't need to know anything about you. You just tell me who your three closest friends are and allow me to come to know them, and I'll be able to tell you almost without exception where you'll be in ten years. That's the power of friendships. And the power of close associations and the importance of being careful about who we give that kind of a place in our lives. And again, the power of, of these relationships for good and for bad and not just for youth, but for adults as well. And so the sinner has nothing to offer the man in search of happiness Or in blessing. So we search our lives this morning related to relationships. But he's not done. He goes on and says, third, he does not sit in the seat of the scornful. And you notice the progression. The walks, the stands, now uh, the sit. The blessed man is one who's careful about what environments he puts himself into. What environment we make ourselves at home in. And that idea of sitting is to just settle down, make myself at home in something. And here he says the, the one that wants to know blessing in life is not going to make himself at home in the presence of a scorner. And the idea of the scorner is one who scorns God. Scorns God, scorns His Bible, scorns His commandments, scorns His ways, scorns His people, scorns God in, in that kind of a way, talks about environments where God is openly despised and where God is joked about and where He is mocked and where He is hated. And the blessed man doesn't laugh at the jokes, whether they're in a sitcom or whether it's a stand-up comedian or whether it's a relative over at the house for Christmas. We don't participate in it. The righteous man realizes and should realize there's something terribly wrong with a human being who scorns God. There's something wrong with that person. Jesus said that the reason that men and women do not come to him for salvation is not, has nothing to do with philosophical arguments, has nothing to do with intellectual arguments. All of those things are easily and readily answered. He says, here's the problem. They love darkness and they don't want to come into the light. That's why when somebody rejects the gospel, I speak to you if you don't know the Lord here today. This is what Jesus says behind all the hubbub and all the words and all the this and all the objections. The fact of the matter is, as God looks at a human heart, he says, all of that is to simply protect this sin that a person knows they'll have to give up in order to come to know God and to walk with Christ. That's what it's all about. And there is something especially dark about the person who scorns God. There is a special darkness or sin that they are protecting in their life by conducting themselves that way. And so the child of God... The one who desires to be blessed, he recognizes that it's not God that's on trial by any scorner, but that the scorner is on trial by God, and one day the scorner will be scorned by God. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, surely he that is God scorns the scornful. And I don't want to be even witnessing that one day when that judgment occurs. And so the blessed man is not at home where God is despised and where God is scorned, but he avoids those kind of places. What environments are we allowing ourselves into? And the environments that we put ourselves into are going to influence us and they're going to affect us. And the importance of being careful about what environments that we put ourselves in. So what about your heart? What about my heart this morning? Are you going places in certain environments? You have no business being in the darkness for a child of God to be in that place. If you're wise and we want to enjoy the blessings of God, then we won't go into that place. And now everything's changed with the technology, the computer, virtually everyone's home. I don't even have to walk into some physical place. I, do you realize I can go up into my office right upstairs here and within a matter of uh, 30 seconds, I can be scrolling through the listing of the books in the library at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. That's how small the world is. I can go up into my computer and within 30 seconds, I can be taking a tour of the Vatican. And zooming in on the artwork and all that is in the Vatican in a way that you can't even do with the naked eye when you stand in that room physically. So we can take ourselves and introduce ourselves into a lot of different environments now by means of technology. And. The writer of the book of of Psalm 1 warns us to be careful, check on our list. Yes, uh, friends, yes, influences, but also being careful about the environments that we put ourselves into. Proverbs chapter 13 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So we listen to that. I read a verse, I quote a verse. For some, it's in one ear, out the other, already in the sermon. This is a powerful passage. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. That happens all day, every day in this city, in your neighborhood, and in this world that we live in. And the importance of being careful, the scornful man has nothing to offer the man in search of true happiness and blessing. But then notice fourth in verse two, that such a man delights in the law of the Lord. That's his attitude toward the word of God. He delights in it. You don't have to force him to go to church on Sundays. You don't have to yell at him week in and week out to establish a devotional life with the Lord and to read the Word of God on a daily basis, this kind of, of thing. He loves to know the Word of God. He loves to obey the Word of God. He loves to be under the influence of the Word of God. And so the blessed man is the man who not only doesn't make the count the ungodly or sinners or scorners his influences in life, but he then takes the additional step of coming under the influence of Of the Word of God. And then fifth, he meditates on God's Word day and night. He meditates. We talk about cows chewing their cud. You have the Word of God comes in, comes into the mind, comes into the heart. And then now, all right, I've read it in. But now I want it to take a, a daily Living, working place in my life. That takes more than reading it in. So now I begin to chew on it out of the desire so that the cow chews its cud in order that what it is, the cud that it is chewing, so that that nourishment will now become a part of its very life, its body. And so that's the desire here of meditating upon the word of God to take the passage, to read it. Yes, but then to meditate on it until it becomes my own and becomes a very part of my life. So he reads the word of God, but he continues to work it over and over in his heart and in his mind throughout the day. Again, to make it a part of his life. The word, uh, Hebrew word for meditate, it means to utter sounds, uh, to speak. Sometimes when you're younger and somebody catches you talking to yourself, you're so embarrassed. And then you get older. You talk to yourself all of the time. And you consider yourself to be delightful company. There's no one who understands me like, I, who else could I talk this over with but me? I could understand the whole thing. I'd be 20 minutes describing it to her or to him or to this or a day or whatever. So I just talk it over with me. And it becomes more and more verbal as you get older because you lose a little bit of uh, restraint. Not too much, we hope. But the idea of taking that passage of Scripture, or maybe I've read that morning in the Scriptures and some passage sticks out to me. And I say to myself, I'm going to talk that over with God the rest of the day. That's one of the great things about the daily bread devotional. This gives you a little old passage in, uh, in the Bible. And they're available in the fellowship hall. A little passage from the Bible. And it gives you devotional thought on it. It does not exhaust the passage. doesn't even remotely exhaust all that's found in the passage. But it introduces a devotional thought that then primes the pump now to begin to think about that all through the rest of the day and then for God to take that wherever he wants to take that until that day, that passage becomes a part of who I am, a part of my relationship with the Lord. And so he has this kind of a a relationship with the Word of God. And he does so, we're told, day and night, which is figurative for always. So during the day, the Word of God, it guides his thoughts and his motives and his emotions and his actions. And then he lays his head down on the pillow at night and he's still thinking about it, still thinking about the Word of God. Sometimes before a person comes to know the Lord, they hear something like I'm speaking right now and they think, oh, my God, what a dreadful life. To meditate upon the word of God in that kind of a way when I could be, you know, uh, picking my quarterback for my fantasy team. Or all the other things that we could be thinking about, you know, and it does. It just seems like it's just a crazy thing that just who in their right are going to miss out on all of life until you're born again. And then you experience this between you and God, and he's a talking God all day and all night. And nothing can compare, not even fantasy football or whatever, whatever the subject would be. To carry on that kind of communion and that kind of a conversation with God. It's a beautiful, beautiful life. And he's describing here, the psalmist is, a person for whom the word of God has become the single greatest influence in their life. Is that true of your life? I, don't, I'm, I have no interest in beating anybody up, but I want to be direct and I want to be clear. Is the Word of God the single greatest and most dominant influence in my life? That's what God. That's the life God has saved us into. That's the standard. I don't know how many Christians understand it anymore. I don't know how many Christians give the Word of God that kind of of a place, even in reading, let alone in meditation, anymore. And let's say just to beat, the, beat anybody up or to beat you up or anything like that, but for us to realize how high the bar is. What true spirituality is described as in the Word of God and in this pathetic gruel that we are fed on a daily basis and think that we can be healthy under it, it can't happen. This is the blessed life that, and, and the life that allows God to bless us in the way that He wants to. The Word of God has this kind of a place in our lives. And not just once a week when I go to church or every time I'm in a kind of a crunch or a disaster or some relationship's gone sideways or some business deal or something like that. But this is the daily portion. So somebody says, I don't, I don't the Word of God doesn't have that kind of a place in my life. I'm a Christian. I know I'm on the way made to heaven. So what, what in the world do I do? I want it to be true. Say, God, I give you permission to do whatever is necessary to make that your word have that kind of a place within my life. And I will cooperate with you in that. And that I will take and on a daily basis I will read your word And then I will take something of it to meditate on. And then, Lord, I will watch you take and make it a part of my life in the way that uh, that pastor has described to me today. And the Lord will do it. And you notice the blessed life, the quality of life that these characteristics produce. He describes in verse three. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. In other words, it's a refreshing life. It's a full, rich life it really is. Now remember, he, he is writing about this tree by rivers of, of water. He's writing to Jews in Israel. In, in Israel, in the Middle East, water is life. Where you have water, you have life. Where you don't have water, you don't have life. Water is life everywhere. But they really understand it in the Middle East. And here you have a tree, the poetic imagery in the mind of the Jew. Here you have a tree, not just planted by a river, singular, but rivers, plural. That's a tree that is beyond blessed in the mind of a Jew in terms of the imagery in the Middle East. And that's what the psalmist is trying to say to us about it. This is a prosperous and a blessed life that comes out of these characteristics. And he says he'll be like a tree that brings forth fruit in its season. In other words, it results in a faithful, a fruitful life. It results in a life that isn't just um, where, again, our standard is so low, where, we ju- where it's just enough for me to get by. Oh, okay i'm i'm looking ahead to the year 2012 and all i want to do all i want to do is not backslide and die a fairly low standard or or, or aspiration here is a life that has so much What that tree is physically. Here's a life spiritually that is so blessed and so overflowing that it has not only enough spirituality for itself, but to be an influence spiritually in any environment that God chooses to put that person in or in any relationship he chooses to put that person in. So it results in a fruitful life. He's talking about a fruit tree here then, isn't he? When you have fruit trees, you've got to have seasons for fruit. So the coming year, so are you saying everything's going to be great? I'm going to win the lottery and I'm going to have this and that. And sometimes our thinking all goes in one direction related to blessing. By the way, do you hear about the guy that his New Year's resolution was to give up lottery tickets? And so he bought one final one yesterday somewhere in California. whatever It was a scratcher, I guess. I did, not like I know a lot about them. So, oh, a scratcher, the pastor knows quite a bit about this, doesn't he? So whatever he did and all, he was an instant $1 million winner of the thing. So this is what I'm telling you. If you walk with God, this is what happens to you. This kind of That's not what I'm saying. So there's seasons. you got a spring, you got a summer, you got a fall, and you got a winter. You take any one of those seasons away and you don't have fruit. You don't have good fruit. has to be all four. They're going to be there. So it's not going to all be spring and it's not going to all be summer. There's going to be fall and there's going to be winter because it takes all four seasons. It takes all kinds of circumstances in our life that God allows and brings into our life in order to produce spiritual maturity in us, just like it does within a tree. He says the leaf will not uh, wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The godly life is a prosperous life in every single way. And then he describes the ungodly, verses 4 through 6. You say, what are, who are the ungodly here? Well, they're the opposite of the godly. They make the ungodly their counselors. They stand in the path of sinners. They sit in the seat of the scornful. They don't delight in the law of the Lord. And they don't meditate upon the the Word of God. It's not an influence in their their thinking or in their doing. And what's the result? He says in verse 4, they're like chaff, which the wind just blows away. Chaff was the outer covering on wheat. And the wind would just blow and the chaff, it's it's lightweight. It just just would uh, blow away. And in the same way, he's saying that the ungodly have no depth. They have no roots into something solid. And so they're completely vulnerable to the difficulty in life and of losing everything in a day because they're not anchored to something that's eternal. And so it's the picture of instability. There is no more unstable Place in all of life than the place of the ungodly. I don't care how much money, how great their thinking is, their business prowess, uh, their gift in terms of creatively and all of that, they are in the most vulnerable place a person can be in all of life. There's no stability there. And verse 4 speaks about their present situation, verse 5 speaks about their future. He said, They won't stand in the judgment. And there's a judgment of God on the other side of this life. And it won't go well for the ungodly. They won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. That is, they won't join the righteous in heaven. There's no heaven in their future. And instead, he said in verse 6, they will perish. For God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. God knows where the way of the righteous leads. He knows firsthand. And he knows firsthand where the end of the ungodly is. And so the blessed are blessed now in this life, and we will be blessed, he's saying, in the life to come. But the ungodly, lacking that foundation in God's word, they're just like the chaff in this life, life, just chaff blown in every direction of the latest Perception of the latest lie or the latest fad or the latest experiment, and only to face God's judgment of the life to come. And this isn't written for the benefit of the ungodly, it's written for the benefit of the godly, so that we realize there's no future in that life and to steer clear of it. And so, this is the recipe for a blessed life and a blessed year. These are the marks of a life that can expect great things from God and with God in the coming year knowing that they have given Him what He desires in order to bless our lives as fully as He desires to do so. So this is the way, this is how to stand under the spout where the blessings pour out. Beautiful psalm speaking to us. And I think that Um, When I was younger in teaching, um, I still loved the exhortive text. But I loved exhortation probably more than I do now. But I still love it now. I have no desire to beat anybody up in an environment like this. Have anybody trapped to make me feel better. But I know the power of the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God. And for us to really, personally, individually give deep consideration to what God is speaking in this psalm. I believe I was directed to Psalm 1 today. You can have a different opinion. But there may be one or two of us in this room that God is saying, in terms of your influencers, in terms of your relationships, and in terms of the environments where you are, This is not going to be a very good year. And 365 days from now, if you survive it, you're going to look back with great regret. And the Lord can pull us aside today and say, not only can we miss all of that regret, but we can head into the new year confident that God is going to do great things in us and he's going to do great things through us. And so these our wonderful, wonderful New Year's resolutions to make in the power of the Holy Spirit to assure a blessed year. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you say, how does all of this start for me? It starts by you just simply putting your trust in the Savior that God has sent into the world for the forgiveness of your sins, putting your faith in Jesus this morning. They're going to be the pastors up in front after the service, and other men and women will be up in front after the service. And I'd love to pray with you to begin the very relationship that you've been created for. And I want to say again, I say it every so often you need to look out for your own soul because nobody else is looking out for your soul. You talk about, look, every Christmas season has its defining moment, doesn't it? It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, that was the Christmas 2011 or the, this, that was the Christmas of, of um, you know, 2008. And so what was kind of the defining moment of Christmas 2011? The New Air Jordans. Where people busted down the doors of stores to get a $180 pair of tennis shoes and the offer by God is made daily to human beings to enter into a relationship with Him and is met with a collective yawn. How insane... How backwards, how dangerous is this world that you and I live in? How upside down is everything in this world that you and I live in? You have to stop for yourself because this world is not going to help you do it. And you can't wait for millions to come to the Lord and then... Trail in behind a big group. You can't even wait for hundreds or tens. You've got to look out for your own soul and make your own decision about what you're going to do with Christ. And know with a great sobriety that not just this life, but your eternity is affected by what you will do with Christ. So do the right thing this morning. And give your life to the Lord. And these men and women would love to pray with you to begin that relationship. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. We want to be standing under the spout where the blessings come out because we are in need of your blessing. And, Lord, we believe it. We're humbled by it. But we believe that allowing you to bless our lives is a blessing to you. And we don't want to rob you of a single opportunity to do so in our lives. Thank you for this very practical instruction in Psalm 1 about how to plant ourselves in this beautiful place. And then to head into this new year with the kind of confidence that you want us to have. Thank you, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.